There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen, and oxygen, and nitrogen, and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, golden protactinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and thallium. This is Real Bad, a podcast that explores the Breaking Bad universe, including the original show, spin-off, and Netflix movie. On each episode, we will discuss one season or a film where appropriate of this universe. Tonight, we will discuss Season 4 of Better Call Saul. My name is Jerome Cusan. I'm one of the co-hosts. You can follow me on Twitter at JeromeC1985. I have seen up to Season 4 of Better Call Saul. Uh, We are part of the Real World Podcasting Network, a network that includes There Will Be Movies, Pantheon Plus, Flooping the Pig, and the archives of From Broadcast Depth. Uh, Please leave a five-star review on your favorite podcasting platforms, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, so as to help people discover the great work that we are doing here. My co-host is Kevin Ford. He has seen everything in the Breaking Bad universe that has aired on AMC or Netflix. You can follow him on Twitter at K413. Kevin, we are back for another episode of Real Bad We basically only have one more episode to do after this in 2020, and then at some point, Better Call Saul will go back into production, and if you can believe it, Kevin, when we watch season six of Better Call Saul in the summer of 2025, we will be on the same level, and and you will not be able to lord your knowledge of the show over me. It's true. It's true. I just have one more season left where I can kind of rub my hands together and and cackle at knowing that I know which you don't. But yeah, it is a weird spot because we're in the still in the midst of this pandemic all these months later and we're at the point where my Adventure Time podcast is on hiatus. This is about to go on hiatus after the next episode because we just don't know. Shows are going to air all these other things, so it's it's pretty strange to do this podcast with you and and then do next month's or in then who knows when we'll podcast again? I don't know when I'm podcasting. You have your uh, your your dates going ever forward with your Pantheon stuff, but uh, I don't know. I guess I'll just have to figure out something else to do with my life. Maybe stare at the wall for a while. That that sounds like healthy pandemic viewing, actually. So much better than reading Twitter or Facebook. Oh God, yeah. I'd re- healthy introspection would be much uh, healthier than trying to to go on social media these days. That's for sure. I have taken Twitter and Facebook off of my phone and it is one of the best decisions that I've ever made. Yeah, I I, I have too. I think a lot of people have and I th- it's just getting out of that habitual like just scrolling and checking. It's almost like an impulse at that point and filling that with, with something else to, to better your time and not just fill your head with those things. This is so not the podcast for this, but I rec- highly recommend it to anybody who feels like they're just kind of in this cycle of just checking it like seconds after you already checked it and you don't know why and you're just getting all this information. It's it's a lot. So any chance to unplug and decompress, perhaps with a podcast, if you will, is uh, is the better choice. A podcast, if you will, as we are going to be discussing season four. So let's dive into things. So I have divided this podcast up into three distinct categories. First, we are going to discuss Jimmy and Kim, then we will discuss Mike, and then we will discuss kind of all the drug dealers. Mike and the drug dealers, even though they're kind of in the same ballpark, there's still a a clear separation and delineation. But this time, we're going to start with Jimmy and Kim. 
because I just think it would be interesting to do that since we've started with Mike over the last couple podcasts. So, of course, with it being the beginning of another season of Better Call Saul, we are checking in with the after events of Breaking Bad as we see what's going on with Gene. This time, we are picking up immediately after Gene passed out at the beginning of Season 3, we see Gene getting medical attention, taken to the hospital. It is revealed to be a panic attack, which is something that I think we've all become more familiar with over the course of the last eight months in this pandemic. Uh, Gene has an issue with his license and the clerk, as there's some banter back and forth. This is the most extended sequence that we have seen with Gene yet, and there is a great deal of tension that exists because, of course, Gene is not who he says he is, and he has to deal with the fact that he has a social security number that probably isn't his and that driver's license. But eventually, he gets the go-ahead to leave, he gets into a taxi cab, but he exits early as he is suspicious as uh, there are some suspicious glances that go back and forth. And Kevin Ford, you notice something about this cab that where they are in Omaha, Nebraska, but you notice something New Mexico related in the cab. And, I, and I'm actually really surprised you didn't notice it because you had mentioned this scene to me. And I, you know, I think Jimmy is safe in assuming that he's in Nebraska and nobody's going to know who Saul Goodman, a New Mexico lawyer is. But the problem is, is that, He's getting these suspicious looks in the rearview mirror from the cab driver, and he notices the air freshener is an Albuquerque Isotopes air freshener in the cab. So he it stands to reason that if this guy's a fan, it's possible he's from New Mexico and would have seen my commercials or my billboards or whatever else and thinks it's me and the jig is up. So I got to exit stage left out of this cab ASAP just in case. This guy's going to take me to the police or something. So we still do not have an indication as to how much time has passed between the end of Breaking Bad and this specific incident. But I would have to imagine that him, like, even if rideshare services were available, that someone like Gene probably should not be putting his name out there on the internet. So I'm assuming that's one of the reasons that he's relying on cabs still. Absolutely, yeah. Pay, something you can pay in cash so there's no paper trail. All these other things, I think, is definitely wisest. I would I would also say it's safe to assume, like, this is either before the days of your ride-sharing services or right when they're in their infancy. So I think cabs are still probably the main way for people to get around if they do not own a vehicle and, and don't use public transportation. Absolutely. So let's get into the meat and potatoes of this storyline as... Uh, Of course, we know how season three ended in a very dark way uh, with Chuck setting himself on fire basically. Uh, so in this case, in uh, as we open, uh, Jimmy is not answering a phone call from Hamlin. Why would he at this point? Uh, Hamlin decides to call the house phone and mentions that something has happened to Chuck to Kim. And then Jimmy finally drives and he sees this is one of the more darker moments of the season in a season full of dark moments. When Jimmy drives up and sees the corners truck just drive away. Uh, that's a pretty dark moment, Kevin. Yeah, very dark. It's and you you understand why he doesn't want to answer the phone from Chuck at that time. You know, how could he have guessed that the reason for the phone call was going to be because his brother had just committed suicide? But it's it is one of those things where as an audience member, you know, and you're like, no, Jimmy, you need to pick up the phone. And fortunately, Kim's there and all that. But yeah, he doesn't even get a I don't know if that's what Jimmy would have wanted, but he doesn't even get a chance to say a proper good ride to his brother's body at that time or anything else. He just has to come and see it being taken away with his, his house 
partially burned down and just kind of make the connection himself. So Jimmy does make some connections of his own, as he mentions that all the electrical items are in the backyard. So it's very clear that Jimmy is suspicious of uh, what has happened uh, with this situation. It is revealed that Chuck McGill's middle name is Lindbergh, so his official name is Charles Lindbergh McGill. Uh, Kevin, I have to be honest and say I did not see that coming. Well, why would you see that coming? Because Charles Lindbergh was a Nazi and I was going for the pun. Oh, I thought of the Lindbergh baby. Is that bad? I mean, either one. I mean, it's pretty famous, but... Well, you know, there's a lot of of German stuff in season four, so I guess having this as a name is uh, another another item to throw on that list. Another dark item to throw on the list from this season as well. And Kevin continues his tradition of no-selling my jokes, which is probably one of the greatest running gags of all time. You're welcome. (laughs) Clearly, yes. Uh, So we get Howard reading the obituary, and Jimmy is on the phone, and... I don't want to say he loses interest because that's not what he does, but he literally just walks away from the phone and he is very clearly processing this in an unusual way because things with his brother undoubtedly did not end very well. Uh, Their last conversation went to some pretty dark places. So it is unclear at this point how Jimmy feels about the death of his brother. Uh, We get Kim breaking out the expensive tequila that we had seen at the end of season three and uh, Kim and Jimmy both drink some of it. Kim apparently drinks a lot more of it, and uh, we see the results of that uh, the following morning. And at the end of episode one, Howard tells Jimmy that he believes it was a suicide after that Howard had brought up the malpractice insurance uh, possibly going up. So Howard, uh, at the end of episode one, is uh, looking very disheveled, and uh, he would... Uh, his his slow breakdown is something that we will be witnessing over the course of season four. His his role is significantly lessened without uh, Michael McKeon as Chuck McGill being around so much, but uh, we do get a little bit of Howard here being very disheveled and uh, very uh, very emotionally fraught after what has happened. A lot of this first half of the season are these three characters kind of dealing with the fallout of Chuck's death. And I think especially for Jimmy, his reactions are very complicated. And again, it's not as if the last interactions really for Chuck with all of them aren't good. Cause if you remember Kim was at the house and she kind of set Howard straight for never caring about her, treating Jimmy well and feeling sorry for him. As you mentioned, Howard's feeling guilt after more or less pushing him into retirement and out of his own firm. So everyone's feeling these really complicated emotions. And what I found most interesting about it is Howard comes to him and mentions that he feels like part of the he's he's the reason for Chuck's suicide. And Jimmy doesn't try to take any of the guilt off of him or make him feel better or say, no, you know, he had a lot going on with myself and there was this and there was that. And even admitting to maybe part of his part that he played in the insurance coming up, he just kind of lets Howard sit with the guilt and, and lets him go and doesn't try to assist him in any way. Uh, so I thought that kind of spoke to, to Jimmy's character as well. But again, I think it's, it's really hard to understand everyone's grieving process and blame them for certain things in their mind. Kind of like how I talked about with Mike's daughter and the way that her relationship is with Mike, there's some things that maybe you can see as being exploitive, but I also think it's hard to to really 
hammer down someone as being particularly evil or manipulative or what have you when they are going through their own grieving process uh, like Jimmy is. But it certainly I don't think is something that put Jimmy in the best light anyways. Certainly not. And as we continue to see Jimmy slowly becoming Saul Goodman, the Saul Goodman that we know from the first season of Breaking Bad, I think you see a lot of moves in that direction. And that continues in episode two as we see Kim waking up to Jimmy juicing. And that is another one of my uh, favorite small running gags. It's something that we we saw started in, in season two. But it is something that has only continued as, I guess, what started as a joke, Kevin, has uh, has become a, an important part of Jimmy McGill's life, the juicing. Yeah, and I, the, what I got from it is that Jimmy, there's grief that he has that he just doesn't want to deal with. And his way of coping with it is having this routine where he gets up, he makes breakfast, he makes his juice, and then he goes out and applies for jobs. And that's keeping his mind occupied at all times. I mean, he's even thinking ahead. When Kim goes off to work talking about, hey, should I pick up Thai or Chinese or Mexican for dinner? So he's kind of like focusing his entire energy and mindset on the whole day. It's almost like he's doing whatever he can to keep himself occupied and not leave any time for for grieving. And that ultimately leads to him snapping during one of these job interviews. But you could see that. I, I see it as a coping mechanism for Jimmy uh, making this juice and doing all this stuff. I think that is a, that is a very strongly presented argument. I could certainly see that. And trying to deal with these complicated emotions leads to Jimmy going to a job interview at a copy place. Not, not one of your bigger copy places, but kind of a, kind of a small, uh, seemingly more of a mom and pop type of place than your FedEx or your Kinko's or places like that. He does a hell of a job, even gets himself uh, a position selling copy machines. And as uh, as you know, as somebody who also works in academia, Kevin Ford, when Jimmy was talking about just how important the copy machine is, in the before time when we could have access to these industrial copiers, those things really do make a difference. Having a working copy machine really does make a difference. And if you don't have one and you are just relying on other things or a copier is broke down, that really does disturb a work day. Yeah, not only that, but I know that a lot of our our staff, like our professors, rely on our admin, administrative staff to make copies and stuff for them for their classes, whether it be handouts or exams or all these other things to do. So, yeah, if you have a copy machine in your area that that doesn't work, it can really set things back for a number of things. So, and especially this is, you know, late Oh two, early Oh three at this point. I mean, we're, we're very far off from the digital age. And so for a lot of places having a, a top notch copier and is still a huge priority. It's a major expense, but it's almost an expense you can't avoid. And uh, Jimmy gets this position, but then he, he shows that he has become a master of self-sabotage by calling them out for hiring him so quickly without doing a background check. And this, this entire scene is just incredible because you have the best and the worst of Jimmy McGill. Literally, it changes from minute to minute as the best of Jimmy McGill is the way that he is able to almost manipulate his way into this position where they tell him they're going to wait to hire him or wait to interview more candidates. He goes back in, talks them into giving him a job, but then basically calls them out for being stupid and not getting the job. 
this, you can understand why Bob Odenkirk would want to come back and play this character. For scenes like this, this is why you come back and do a Breaking Bad spinoff so that you could get these kinds of monologues and a lot to chew on. Yeah, it is a lot to chew on. You almost wonder, you know, Jimmy's one of his, um, one of the, the things he has to do for his disbarment is keep gainful employment for that entire year, which is why he's doing these job interviews. And yeah, it's, it's like he, he puts on the, the, the Saul persona to really sell himself and talk himself into getting the job. And then it's almost like he's disappointed in them or ha- or like loses respect for the company when they take him at face value and hire him. And so he decides to leave. It's a, it's a very interesting look into the psyche of Jimmy McGill slash Saul Goodman. What do you happen to remember the name of the character actor who plays the boss here? I feel like he's in literally everything I watch. I did not look this up. This is something I meant to look up, but he is definitely somebody that has been in a lot of commercials, TV shows, movies. I think he was even in Mad Men kind of playing a similar role uh, to this one. So I definitely have recognized this actor. Yeah, Andrew Friedman. He's in like, he's in a million, like, God, his IMDb is insane. We have seen him in a number of television shows, movies. He is one of those guys who just does everything seemingly and has these kinds of roles and has probably played an executive or middle management a million times. But you cast this kind of actor for this role because you know what he's going to do. And he is, he's just, he's got the look of a boss, but he's also got kind of the sad sack aspect to him which is talked uh which is referenced more in the next episode but uh some very good casting again by the folks at better call Saul. yeah absolutely he's definitely that person who you feel like he's always in a position of power but he just has like this nervous nature where he's somebody who's in power that can easily be manipulated or walked on like jimmy does so we get kim going to howard's office howard hamlin's office on behalf of jimmy And this is uh, one of the more interesting scenes that is in the season because this is a time when Kim is really kind of establishing herself. And I think that there has been a lot of discussion over the last couple of years about Ray Seahorn getting an Emmy nomination, not getting a nomination. But one of the things that I wrote down as I was watching the scene, Kevin, is this to me is like an Emmy winning moment. Like if they were to play a clip at the Emmys for Ray Seahorn getting a nomination for Best Supporting uh, Actress, this is the moment that they would show because it is dramatic, it is a monologue, and you are getting to see just how much she cares about Jimmy and how much she is tired of Howard's shit. Yeah, this is where, and the way I kind of saw it was I think she realizes through her interactions with Howard and maybe some other stuff she sees from, uh, I'm sorry, from her interactions with Chuck and from what she sees from Howard is, Nobody really sticks up for Jimmy or nobody really has Jimmy's back. And now, of course, they're romantically linked. So there's some there's something in it for her, too. She wants her her boyfriend, for lack of a better word, to, to feel better and, and be at a side. And now she's not under the thumb of HHM where she can go and speak her mind. And so she does that for Jimmy and says, like, what the hell is wrong with you trying to go in here and try to absolve yourself of guilt to to Jimmy just to make yourself feel better? And it was a very powerful scene. And it was her taking charge for something in her personal life. It's a lot of the times I feel like you see Kim either sticking up for herself, but a lot of it is tied into her career. And for the first time, she's sticking up for somebody else that has no ties to her career life whatsoever. And I do wonder if maybe 
her getting in the crash last season and all this has her guard down a little bit on making the priority in her life, her job and starting to realize that I really need to take care of the, what's the stuff in my life that's truly important, like my relationships. And I think her going to Howard here was uh, a great move for a partner and just shows a lot of strength in, in Kim herself. Yeah. Just one of the best scenes of the entire season. And the one thing I will say, it feels the Jimmy storyline. I think there are, there are episodes when it kind of feels like it is a little bit lackluster, I think that the way that it begins and ends is really strong, but I think some of what they do in the middle doesn't totally work for me. The figurine storyline is is a big example of this. It's not something that I particularly want to spend a lot of time on, but this is something that Jimmy does as he looks up figurines. We even get our one Mike and Jimmy scene. Mike decides that he is not going to help Jimmy steal the one that is at the copy place, but what eventually happens is Jimmy does convince someone uh, to complete the steal of the stealing of this very valuable uh, figurine, and uh, this ge- this gets him some money, which he then uses uh, to buy some cell phones and start his, uh, start his official side hustle, but uh, Kevin, anything that you want to say about the figurine storyline, because like I said, it is not something that was, it was not my favorite part of season four. So there's two very critical tiebacks to Breaking Bad in this scene here. So the first is that Andrew Friedman's character, Mr. Neff, who works for the copier store, we discover that he's having some marital problems, so he's spending the night in his office, and he orders himself a pizza from the same pizza place that is uh, notorious for the roof pizza scene. So this chronologically is the first time we've seen it. And there's actually something I forgot in Breaking Bad that happens too. So I think one thing that... It, it may have even bugged the writers more than it does fans, but you may remember Jerome when he throws the the pizza on the roof. It's not cut. Anytime you order a pizza, you get it cut into usually eight slices if it's your traditional looking pie. And I think it bugged them like, why the heck wouldn't this pizza be cut? So in Breaking Bad, there's the scene. It's it's during like that period of time where uh, Jesse keeps having all these parties at his houses and he has Badger order a bunch of pizzas and they open the pizza box and he's like, why aren't these cut? And Badger says something like that's their gimmick. They don't cut it. So they move the savings onto you. And then in this scene, when he's ordering the pizza and the dip and sticks, he makes sure to say, yes, I'd like that pizza sliced. So internally they did this to make it make sense that when Walt throws the roof pizza on the roof, it would be unsliced all, all these extra little scenes just to make that make sense. That's the kind of show we're dealing with here. But the second thing is, is that the gentleman who saw hires to steal the rare Hummel figurine from inside his office is Ira, who is the manager of Bominos Pest, who leads the burglaries through legitimate business and then eventually helps Walter and Jesse to cook inside their, the tented homes in breaking bad. So this is how we get, him and Saul to meet up and then later for Saul to know to pass off Jesse and Walt to him to give them a place to cook. Those are some really great connections. And look, if Star Wars can create a whole movie to close a loophole in A New Hope, then Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul, they can surely do the same thing, right? Damn right. So after this uh, this Emmy-winning moment, uh, we go into uh, kind of let's get into episode three. And in this case, we are seeing... Uh, Kim is still working on the Mesa Verde account, and this is an account that is getting bigger and bigger. She is being shown many different buildings in many different states, 
and it's uh, it's pretty wild to see just how quickly they are expanding. But Kevin, in the back of my mind, I don't know if this 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 requires some real world knowledge, but knowing that this takes place in 2003, 2004, and knows it, knowing that there is a housing bubble that is going to crash in 2007, you have to wonder, is Mesa Verde going to make it? Yeah, it's a good point. And I don't know that we even hear about Mesa Verde and Breaking Bad. So maybe they don't, but yeah, this is, this, this seem this felt to me like the very, uh, very real, like rapid expansion, corporate, not necessarily greed, but listen, we're doing well, but we can always do better and let's do this rapid expansion. And, you know, maybe we are opening a couple stores, but what's a couple more on top of that? It, it, it very much feels realistic to me that Kevin Wachtel, the guy who's kind of heading up all these things, you know, he's an idea man and there's these things that he wants to be put into execution and it's everybody else's job to figure out the details and make those things come to reality. And so it's all these people who he's hired to carry out his vision in his mind. That's what they're there for. But he and it's so almost like I'm going to have these big ideas and leave the little details to everybody else, not realizing the burden it is on those people to put those real life actions into play. But I didn't even take that market or the the housing bubble into consideration. But you know, some they they unfortunately couldn't see coming back in 03. Can't trust anyone named Kevin, right, Kevin? Yeah, take it from me. Uh, so we get Jimmy saying that he will not contest the will. He signs uh, for the check and takes a letter home and reads it. This is a letter that was written by Chuck to Jimmy. Uh, Kim is crying as Jimmy reads the letter. But there are there are a couple of different ways that we can interpret this reading of the letter. Because Chuck very poignantly says that this letter is uh, is written in such a way, uh, the spirit of which it is written is one of the lines that is used by Chuck in the letter. And it uh, it's not the term passive-aggressive, but there are a lot of backhanded compliments. So you could interpret a lot of what Chuck is saying as a backhanded compliment to his brother. Yeah, I I don't know that I necessarily saw it that way. I kind of saw it as like, he was very careful with what he said, but I think at the end of the day, he really does love and care about his brother is, is the main takeaway. And I think the way Jimmy is reading it, first of all, eating eating a bowl of cereal while reading it out loud, which is, I think, a very deliberate choice because cereal is very classically connected to kids in television. And I think Jimmy, in a way, is a very grown kid himself. And obviously, it's him and his brother, and there's that connection to their childhood there. Uh, but also, I think... Kim is 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 crying both from the the sweetness of the letter and in and I'm and I'm using that if you're putting it on the scale of level of of sweetness when it comes to Chuck McGill towards his brother and that she's I think she finds it upsetting that there's almost no reaction from Jimmy. I think that upsets her more than anything else to the point where Jimmy even sees that in her and tries to like hey you know what it it's a really nice letter so and she but I think the damage is kind of done, and she sees that, man, some, something's happened to Jimmy where he is very hollow towards his brother, for better or worse. And even in even in death, Jimmy still harbors who knows what, a resentment of some types or what. But yeah, this scene, I think, spoke a lot to the 
and I think almost ultimately comes to affect the relationship between Jimmy and Kim going through the rest of the season. And I think that is the correct interpretation. Given what we see as their relationship develops through the rest of the season, I think that makes a ton of sense. And it even comes to a point where Kim tells Jimmy to talk to a therapist, and Jimmy is not going to want to do this for a lot of reasons. Uh, Jimmy lies about having a job and then immediately accepts a job at a cell phone store, and this kind of becomes the most important part uh, of Jimmy's life for the rest of this season, as Jimmy becomes a seller of cell phones, which in 2002-2003 probably doesn't mean as much as it does maybe even in 2014-2015 when cell phones and smartphones are so much more popular. And cell phones are a real investment uh, for people. At this point, I don't think cell phones are as much of an investment. And there's a, uh, a bit more manipulation that can go on uh, from this. And as I mentioned, Jimmy gets the money from the figurine and starts to identify ways that he can make money for himself by selling cell phones on the side while also selling cell phones in the store. Yep, he he uses his Jimmy McGill way to push a lot of product because one, he's bored, uh, but two, I also he he gets inspiration from Ira later when they meet up and they do their money exchange from the figurine, and he mentions that brings the idea of uh, having to ditch a phone to him, and he thinks, hmm, I happen to know a lot of people in this criminal underbelly that I can maybe attract with this. But I also think an important thing that happens when he's working there is he gets a call from the son of Geraldine, the woman who was in the commercials he did back in season two. That almost affects him more than which is a little bit warped. Uh, and ultimately, he has to pass off the taking care of her will to HHM. But I thought that was an, a, a nice little character moment for him in the midst of all this telephone stuff. But yeah, it, it this store almost gives Jimmy McGill... Uh, a way to be in his element while also, quote unquote, serving his time working in this job before he can hopefully get back in the good graces of the New Mexico Bar Association. For sure. I mean, it's very clear that he's kind of playing multiple angles, as Jimmy McGill is wont to do. But meanwhile, what what's going on in episode four with Kim is she goes to observe court and the judge, again, another tremendous character, actor, who is somebody that has been in every movie and TV show. I mean, this judge, he gets some really great dialogue. And one of the most powerful things that he says, and this is something that really stuck with me, is he talks about this idea of this once-in-a-lifetime case, which we have seen in movies and television shows and in John Grisham novels. Like, this idea of this lawyer getting this really huge case and being able to make their name, make their career on this particular case, and you think about all the legal dramas that have been done over the years, and we're talking about movies like A Few Good Men, The Verdict, things like that, and the reality is, according to the judge, the only place that you are going to see these once-in-a-lifetime cases are in movies and television shows, and basically what the judge tells Kim is that she almost needs to be satisfied with the position that she is in having uh, representing a company like Mesa Verde and basically being able to not have to go to court and to make a solid living and donate to charity. But you always get the sense that Kim wants something more, that it's it's she's trying to simultaneously do the right thing, be a good person, but she also clearly wants to be known as 
as a great litigator as well. And that's something that she is always chasing. Yeah, it, it goes kind of back to in season, I forget if it was two or three at this point. I guess it would have been two when Jimmy's working at Davis in Maine, but he's bored. He's not being able to do things on his terms. And he longs for his previous life that when he goes back and talks to his old colleague, they envy his life. So there's always this grass is greener thing. And I think for Kim, she was able to finally be in a position where he, she could stand on her own without a law firm, work for this big bank, make good money, have a good reputation, but she's bored. It's not giving her the same thrill or fulfillment that arguing a case in court would give her otherwise. And so it's like, she's almost getting that, that second hands, uh, you know, hit, so to speak by sitting in on these, on these court cases, but she needs something else to feel alive again. Uh, and that goes into how she handles herself in the rest of the season. As episode five begins, we get one of the more interesting flashbacks because within the context of this show, it is technically a flash forward as we see, uh, some, I guess you would consider, you can almost consider it like a deleted scene from one of the greatest episodes of television ever produced. Ozymandias, as we see Saul getting ready to run away to Omaha, Nebraska, uh, we get the return of Francesca. I'm really glad that they got to put her in this season, if for no other reason than Fran- Francesca and Jimmy together are hilarious. Uh, Saul gives Francesca a card and says, tell them Jimmy sent you. So that is clearly something that is going to be important later on, and it's definitely something we should put a pin in and consider for later. But basically, this the idea of this scene is that we are seeing Saul run away. We even see him call Robert Forrester's character. We don't see Robert Forrester, but we see him call the character. And very, very poignantly, uh, we see some close-up shots of cell phones, and that's kind of the important aspect of this episode. But uh, it was it was good to see uh, kind of this other perspective of Ozymandias when you have a prequel like this. That's that's one of the things that you can do is you can have some fun with kind of what else is happening in the episode, uh, even though Ozymandias was so heavily focused on Walter and Jesse, it was nice to be able to see what was going on with Saul as well. Definitely, and I think this is our first flash forward, not counting all the Gene scenes at the beginning of the season that we've had all series long, and I think it was something that people wanted to see, putting that little connective tissue of what was Saul doing prior to being met by Walt in the basement of Robert Forrester's shop. Uh, you have He's deleting all his documents, shredding all his documents, getting whatever he's hiding out of, making the call, giving Francesca the uh, the business card, and also making a, a future rendezvous date. Very vague terms, but Francesca makes it known, you know, hey, I'll be there on this date and time, but if you're not there, I'm out of there. Um, so we'll see if that comes into play later, too. Uh, I'm not I don't say that coyly. I, I genuinely don't know if that comes into play later or not. But uh, interesting that they again, the, they don't make mistakes. They don't put these things in here unless they're going to pay off later. You know, little things like the cut pizza and some other things like that aren't things I don't think they plan to do in Better Call Saul back in Breaking Bad. But now that we are where we are, I think you, you throw out a line like that immediately raise an eyebrow and uh, make note of it in my head. So, yeah, who wouldn't love to see a, a more or less, like you said, a deleted scene from one of the most beloved episodes of the the, the sequel series to Better Call Saul. Uh, so we get a lot of Jimmy and the cell phone 
action going on as he is giving a customer the hard sell about privacy. You can really tell that Jimmy is in his element, and he seems genuinely happy to be selling and kind of manipulating, but still selling cell phones. And you just get the impression that this is uh, this is Jimmy McGill in his element, where he is able to kind of control things. There is there is very little oversight uh, from whatever corporate office he is working for. Throughout the episode, we see him. Uh, trying to sell cell phones. And at first, you know, he's wearing a suit and he's wearing an outfit that makes him look like an undercover police officer. So he eventually changes into the same outfit that we saw uh, last season as he was uh, doing his, uh, his fake walk through the mall. But shockingly in this episode, we actually see Jimmy uh, get mugged and kind of lose out on an opportunity, lose out on some of the money and the phones that he made. And uh, this, uh, this was, it was really interesting to see Jimmy in this episode kind of going through both the highs and lows of starting the new business. And it was not unlike what we've seen in the past with Walter and kind of his struggles uh, with the drug dealing business. So I like that they, are, they kind of are telling a, a very consistent story of just how difficult it can be uh, to break into kind of the illegal underworld of, in this case, uh, burner cell phones. Yeah, it can be, but I will give Jimmy credit. He seems to have a way with words and a way of connecting to criminal where, you know, I, like you said, those kids who end up beating him up, they think he's a narc at first and then they see he's real and decide to rob him. But when he's dealing with like the biker gang and some other people and talk to them in this montage, you get a sense that he has, he has a real good way with people in general, but there's something about the way he's able to connect to these criminals that he's able to gain their trust and speak to them in such a way that I don't want to say, their guard down necessarily but it makes them feel at ease with dealing with him like he's not going to turn them into the police or he's not somebody who's going to to screw them over in the end which i have to imagine is such a hard thing to do to convince somebody especially when you're more or less just trying to make some money off of them but jimmy does it successfully and it sucks that he gets robbed at the end but you know i think those kids are smart they realize like you can't go to the police and turn us in if he's selling these cell phones off the books to to the criminal underworld. So it's a very hard thing to get into. And it's something that Jimmy, as the season goes on along, kind of figures out how to navigate and realizes I need muscle. I need smarts and I need a, I need a plan going into these things for sure. And we will see this pay off in a future episode, but we do get to see Howard. And at the end of episode five, Howard is a broken man. Uh, it, it, the, the way that he looks again, even more disheveled, more tired, Howard is very clearly going through some shit and Jimmy kind of talks up his plans at the end of this episode as well, that he's going to come back bigger and better with more clients and more cases. And, uh, Howard and Jimmy, they've always had, had kind of a tenuous relationship. And, uh, you, you get the impression that Howard is just tired of dealing with the McGill family at this point. And who could blame him? I mean, I don't want to say they're the cause of all his, problems but i think there's a lot of weight that he carries both with the death of chuck and how to move on with hhm with no more m and and, you know his father isn't in the picture it seems so really this giant law firm in new mexico is pretty much totally on his shoulders right now and so there's just there has to be so much going on in his life right now and it has to be this major weight that it's it's really crushing him and i do feel bad for howard but you know my one of my takeaways from this as well is that uh, 
I think we all we're all wondering, well, if Jimmy gets disbarded and a year later passes, is he even going to want to go back to the law? And you see Jimmy's grand plan start to form and uh, maybe he has a partner in mind, too. But yeah, so that that was kind of my thing is, all right, Jimmy seems to be even if he is having his dalliances with with the criminals of the underworld, it seems like getting back to law is his is a focus of his. Definitely. Uh, as we start episode six, we go back about 10 years from the context of the show to March of 1993, as Jimmy and Kim are both working in the mailroom, and Jimmy is either in charge or one of the people in charge of an, an Oscar pool. And in 1993, this, uh, this was the Academy Awards for 1992, so such movies as Scent of a Woman... Bram Stoker's Dracula, The Last of the Mohegans. These are some of the movies that came out in 1992. Kim tells Jimmy about Chuck winning an unwinnable case. And then we get some interaction between Chuck and Kim and Jimmy. As uh, I get the impression that Chuck is talking a little bit down to the both of them. Maybe this is just my read of the Chuck character in general, not having a very positive viewpoint of him. But that's kind of the impression that I'm getting is that he is at the peak of his powers at this point in 1993. Not only is he at the peak of his powers, but he basically has kind of his brother under his thumb and under his control to an extent. So this is probably a very happy time for Chuck McGill. Yes, yeah, this is really him as the superstar of the firm. He solved this big case using really obscure law and he gets this hero's response from the firm for doing so. Uh, but yeah, then he, then he talks to Jimmy and Kim and Jimmy, he definitely feels is underneath him. And it's probably, I think this is what you think of the classic hierarchy structure where these are mailroom people I'm talking to, and I'm one of the names on this building. So they don't mean much to me, but Kim definitely has this rapport where she knows like exactly the way to speak to him. That's not condescending, but she's trying to, or not sucking up, but trying to ask the right questions to show that she's interested in the law and maybe impress him a little bit with her question. It feels like a very calculated way. Like if I'm going to talk to Chuck McGill, I want to make sure my interaction counts and I say the right thing. And it seems like she has this kind of prepared thing to ask him when he comes out of his office. And you really get the sense that she has this idea of becoming a lawyer in mind and and you see like a little bit of the inner like the beginnings of their relationship the two of them and maybe there's a little more romance in Jimmy's eyes than her at this time but I think this was a really great way to look into the past and get kind of the origin of their relationship a little bit where they were at this time of their lives and how uh, Chuck's relationship with with the two of them was at this time as well so I don't know there there has to be a clear reason for this what do you know the name of the movie that won Best Picture at this Academy Awards? The Academy Awards and that took place in 1993. Yes, for movies that were released in 1990. I believe it was Unforgiven. It is Unforgiven. That that cannot be a coincidence that they chose this year and this Academy Awards. I do know the person who wrote the scene, scene mentioned she was a huge fan of Emma Thompson and Howard's End was uh, she won for Howard's End as Best Actress that year, so. You know, and I think it just happened at the time frame. But yeah, Unforgiven being the the best picture and best director, if I recall correctly, that year definitely makes sense. And I also just like the line where Jimmy is looking at the ballot and he's like, oh, you think Al Pacino's going to hoo his way into best actor this year? Something about that delivery uh, was, was very fun to me. I mean, if you 
if you have ever seen Scent of a Woman, then you realize that, yes, Al Pacino did hoo-ha his way to a Best Actor win. He did. Indeed, he did. All right, so we get a lot of uh, we get a lot of Kim and kind of dealing with her psyche in this episode as she is doing Mesa Verde work, uh, but she is constantly checking on people who need defending. So you can see a lot of conflict in her as she does not necessarily want to just be doing this made of Mesa Verde work, but she actually wants to be helping people, and that's when she decides to meet with Rick and kind of going back to the well, so to speak, and kind of combining their forces so that she is able to spend some time, at least, uh, working with uh, people who may not necessarily be able to defend themselves uh, without a public defender. Yeah, and I think that definitely gives her a great sense of accomplishment of pride, like she's giving back. I think some of the things that are lacking from her life working for Mesa Verde, and she now has a paralegal who's able to take a lot of the Mesa Verde work off her plate, but... I think it sort of does feel like she has her eyes off the prize. And I'm going to use a weird analogy here. I, I believe you were still watching wrestling a little bit when uh, Z, uh, Shima's eye on DJZ, whoever was wrestling at the time. Yes. So, the, so he became DJZ because in real life, one of his hobbies became DJing. And he's mentioned this before in interviews is that he had been wrestling for a long time. That was his job. That was his main source of income. And I don't know what happened exactly, but DJing and the life and the and the people in that life sort of took over and he spent a lot more time into that world. And eventually he had to come to the realization of you're kind of neglecting the thing that makes you that gives you a living and that you also really love. And you need to kind of maybe step back a little bit and figure out the balance between these two worlds. And that's kind of what I feel like is going on with Kim here because she does miss a meeting with HHM. She I forget which episode it is, but she hangs up on the person in, I'm sorry, in Mesa Verde that she works with. And she needs a stern talking to about like, you know, when we had this relationship, we understood we had you lock, stock and barrel, never let this happen again. And I think she does eventually need that come to Jesus talk of remember where your bread is buttered. You can do these other things on your own time and that's fine, but you need to ultimately remember what is making you earn a living and making you stand on your own. And I think we see her get really into the, the nitty gritty of these of these cases she's taking and it does sort of hinder her, her Mesa Verde work. And it comes to kind of bite her in the butt. Right. And she even has a conversation with Jimmy as they are drinking our favorite Moscow mules. Uh, there's a lot more alcohol on this, uh, this season, definitely between the Moscow mules and the beer that we're going to talk about later. Uh, Kim talks about work becoming more complicated with Jimmy. And she even talks about this idea of helping people and, this is something that I think is going to play an important role in the rest of the season as we do see her kind of combine forces um, with the other law firm. And she is able to then she is then able to represent clients. And I think it ultimately makes her uh, feel better just for a little while, not for very long, because, of course, uh, there's always stuff going on with Jimmy um, as he has a, a crap ton of of phones in his uh, in his office and uh, we see some interactions between her and the person in charge of uh, of the nail place and Jimmy decides to get some revenge and kidnap uh, the boys who mugged him and uh, this is one of the darker scenes this is where we get to see dark Jimmy because he is physically threatening these like 16 year old boys and look maybe they deserve some punishment but man this feels like Jimmy is going He's taking a huge step 
uh, I don't want to say forward, but he is taking a huge step uh, towards his own version of Breaking Bad. Oh, yeah, this is a really like I remember this being a very scary scene to watch when I first saw it. And a lot of the podcast talks about like the technical side of it, of like <laughs> having to direct Huel and the other person. there, like, OK, guys, we have extras of these but not these so make sure you're hitting the ones we have extras of like that gave me a good chuckle because that kind of gives you a into this dark scene but also i guess for scenes where people are hung upside down they can only be upside down for like a 90 seconds so you don't have much time to shoot when these people are upside down these scenes and you need to make it count i think maybe stunt men uh or stunt people have a little extra time to have but it so it sounded like a really complicated shot but it was something that was so big the episode and it really made i think it makes sense because jimmy really needs to scare these kids so that not only will they leave him alone but they will tell the tale of jimmy mcgill to their friends and they'll also leave alone that he needed to go to this extra extra lengths to scare these kids and it was definitely a standout scene of the season because it felt so different and it was so dark for a jimmy mcgill but you're right it definitely feels like it might have been uh, something you would see right out of Breaking Bad. But as we get to Jimmy turning into full-blown Saul, I think this was a, a great scene to continue that portrayal. So one of the things that I've been wondering about is, is there ever going to be a, a major time jump? And it's something that they really have not done between seasons. Is that The action has generally picked off right where the last season has ended. And in the next episode, episode seven, we get a huge time jump, about six months, I believe. And the note that I wrote is that it's a montage of, of Jimmy and Kim kind of going through life. But this montage really is so much more than that. It is a very powerful piece of storytelling because you see kind of their relationship kind of deteriorating and them kind of slowly growing apart, I guess is the best way that I can put it. But just the way that they're able to take these mundane actions and turn them into crucial pieces of storytelling, this is one of the most impressive things that I have ever seen on a television show. And I think you think of a montage in this almost cliched way, and, you know, Trey Parker and Matt Stone have had their fun with montages. They made a song about montages in Team America, and they, they kind of can become parodies of themselves in some of the Rocky movies. But this was a montage that worked so well on me because it literally just showed this relationship and kind of how bad things are getting. And it also was nice to see things move forward in such a way because you got to reposition the characters a little bit and you got to see some evolution with the other storylines that we're going to be talking about. But this montage, Kevin, was... I mean, it's it almost makes this entire episode one of the best episodes of the season, just because this montage is like eight to ten minutes of the episode. I don't know if it's that long. It, it's definitely pretty long, but it's definitely, I think, one of the best things in Better Call Saul entirely. It's something and people still talk about today as being one of the highlights of the show, as it is. Like you said, it just goes to show like you're watching two people basically who used to be in love, not be in love anymore. And they just be more distant, both personally and professionally. And it's just like two people now in just two different parts of their lives. And the podcast talked a lot about the song that underscores it. It's a cover of something stupid, which was done by Frank Sinatra and Nancy Sinatra, which is really weird that a song like this romantic song by a father and daughter, but I digress. And they talked about the whole process of outsourcing it and getting samples and eventually settling on this band Lola Marsh to do 
a cover for the song and just how perfect their voices were and they were able to extend the song all these things to specifically fit the montage um and so i like that too that it, it i think one of the reasons it works so well is you didn't just create a montage and then find a song that fit they found the song that fit first did had outsourced it so someone else would even make it better to, crafted to that scene and then put that scene together and it's a scene i feel like you may want to watch like three or four times because i think you want to watch it first then watch it again just in Jimmy's perspective, then watch it again from Kim's, and then maybe a fourth time once through all the way together just to get all the little pieces of it. And it was a lot of stuff. It was everything was shot specifically for the montage. It's not just like B-roll footage or cutting room floor stuff that they cobbled together for this. It's very specifically supposed to be put together to give that overall feeling. And so I say all that to say the reason it's so effective the reason it's so well remembered is because so much was put into it to make it that way and i think it just it fits so perfectly in the context of the show and where we are at this point in season four i mean and i think you have to give a lot of credit credit to the director and the editor of this episode just for being able to put this together i know that we talk a lot about the performances and give credit to the writers but i think the directors do a really amazing job just throughout the entire run of Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. It is no wonder to me that so many of these directors are eventually making their own feature films or executive producing other TV shows. You know, someone like Michelle McLaren, who has gone on uh, to produce a show like Morning Show. I mean, you can really see just the hard work that's gone on. And I know that you mentioned that one of the editors of Better Call Saul has also gone on to do bigger and better things as well. Yeah, the one of the... Are you- uh, one of the editors has gone on to do, I think, one was it one of the Star Wars movies I mentioned? Or no, 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 um, the Winter Soldier and Falcon television series for Disney Plus. So I'm hoping for some pretty sweet montages there. Just remember, even Rocky had a montage, Kevin. It did, and I, and there's, and it's interesting seeing because they do focus a lot to their credit on the directors, the writers, the producers, the editors, the sound people. Like they especially had the music guy on a lot in this season of the podcast. And I got a lot of really great tidbits that I'll mention as we do our podcast. Uh, But, you know, they talk a lot about having different directors in every episode, different producers, because they want to be able to get so many different lenses of how of viewpoints and so many different ideas to make the best episodes possible. And so they do fortunately give the credit that they deserve to the people involved in the show. And they give a lot of people chances too to work their way up the ladder into those roles as well. Um, and a lot of them are also from the AMC family. So they're very familiar with Breaking Bad and Saul. So there's there's a there's a really well-oiled operation they have there, which and it comes out in the shows for sure. As we get back into talking about episode seven, since six months have passed, we are ever more closer to Jimmy potentially being able to get his law license back. So we see him uh, showing off a potential office space to someone we don't see. Eventually, it is it is revealed to, to be Huell. And Kevin, every time I see Huell on screen, what, what do I send you? You send me the, the money gift with him? Absolutely. Uh, so Huell asks about the fact that there are not going to be any more cell phones. 
And Jimmy poignantly says yes, so you know that they are clearly setting something up. But before we get to that, we get Jimmy and Kim. And this, I think, is a really good representation. If the montage didn't do the work, then this specific scene does, as Jimmy pitches a trip of his own to the law firm that Kim is working for. And you... It is very clear that Jimmy, the way that he thinks, is so much different uh, than the people that he is associating with. And there's a part of me that wonders if it's a class thing, like Jimmy coming from where he has, if it's that, if it's the fact that he's from the Midwest and his perspective on things can be a little different. But there is very clearly a disconnect between Jimmy and just about every other lawyer that is in Albuquerque. And I'm sure some of that also has to do with the fact that his lo- his brother was a famous lawyer, and people may perceive him in a different way because of that. But I think you really see that disconnect in this scene. Yeah, I think that's... I think everything, all of his background comes together, and he has this different point of view. And I think that that ultimately is... What Kim is struggling with, too, is seeing things through Jimmy's point of view and thinking – because I think you know when you're a lawyer and you're, and you're in these classes is breaking the law is bad, obeying the law is good, and it makes you see in these terms of black and white. And I think Jimmy sort of changes a little bit of that perspective with Kim, uh, which comes out in their little uh, adventures and, and hijinks that they do to, to get things right in some respects – but, uh, I, I, yeah, it is interesting to see that his point of view and the way he does things. And I think a lot of that is justified from Jimmy as, you know, well, I'm doing these things my way, but it's, it's for the better good of these people. It's for the better good of the person I'm trying to help. Um, and I think Kim gets a lot of that secondhand too. Uh, but yeah, I think this, this scene definitely, uh, highlights the differences and just hit the lens of, of Jimmy McGill versus everybody else. Well, it's very clear that Jimmy McGill is not helping the, the higher level members of society as he has an interaction with an Albuquerque police officer as he is selling his, uh, his cell phones. And eventually uh, it turns into a bit of an argument and Huell is just, just happens to be walking by and he, he saves Jimmy from an undercover police officer, even shoves the man down, not knowing uh, that he is a police officer, but there, this raises a number of issues, the fact that Huel is black. This is something that actually plays into the episode, and this is not something that we really saw a lot of in Breaking Bad, but it was nice to see this show just come out and talk about the racism of the justice system, as Kim is the one who is calling it out. It makes sense that Kim would be the one to call it out, even more so uh, than Jimmy, as Kim is trying to help Huel out, and part of the reason that they're doing that is because of what Huell has done in the past. And I just, it was it was so interesting to me the way that this this all came together because you, you watch that scene with Jimmy and the cop, the cop is very clearly being a dick. And I don't think that that was an accident, that this cop is just basically going completely overboard. And then you have Huell doing what he does. And then you end up in a situation where Huell could potentially have to go to jail and that we can get more into that in the next episode. But just your thoughts on what happens with Kim and that scene with the police officer. Well, first, he doesn't shove the police officer down. He blindsides him with like a trash bag full of stuff. He like smacks him with it and it knocks the police officer over. And he has these 
big headphones on. He's listening to very loud music. So Jimmy's trying to tell him, no, no, it's a cop. And he doesn't hear him. And they apparently have a previous history like that cop arrested Huel once upon a time. And a lot of what I got from it was also Jimmy having to go to Kim again to get him out of a jam to use her help. And I don't know that she particularly loves having to do that for Jimmy once more. Uh, but yeah, I think viewing through this through the lens of 2020 eyes definitely feels a lot different than the way I watched it back in would have been 2017 or 18 when this aired. Even just a couple years later, I think the people's view of the justice system definitely presents this in a very different way. This uh, this feeling about the justice system and the commentary continues into uh, the next couple of episodes. As, uh, as Jimmy says at the beginning of episode 8 that he is going somewhere and will be back Thursday, and this leads to a tremendous, it's not quite a montage, but we see a series of scenes uh, with, with Jimmy and uh, having people write postcards for him. And just imagine being on a bus and somebody asks you to write a postcard. What, what would your reaction be besides putting your headphones in and running away or sitting in your chair quietly? Because I am not very sociable on buses or trains, so I, I, I probably would not help Jimmy out in this circumstance, even for a few bucks. Yeah, I wouldn't either, and it felt very interesting that there was a plenty of people who seemed okay to hire him i mean i guess listen if you're on a long bus trip from new mexico to louisiana you've got nothing better to do yeah maybe make a few extra bucks writing these cards but it does seem like a little too convenient that they would that he would get enough volunteers to make this happen over such a bus trip but hey i get it it's a television show you got to take a little bit of uh Take a take a little. I don't know. It's a means to an end. It's the Deus Ex Machina to get them where they need to be, and I'm I'm okay with it because it made for a pretty fun opening scene. Yeah, I mean the scene itself is hilarious because Bob Odenkirk. I think you could give him the phone book and he would find a way to make it entertaining. And I mean, there's a reason that he is leading this show and has is generally considered uh, to be one of the better comedic actors of the last thirty years. I mean, he is a very talented performer and can make anything work. And I just think the execution is is so well done and. This eventually leads. So one of the things that's going throughout my mind is what in the hell are they doing? Why are they having him write postcards? Well, this eventually gets paid off as uh, as Kim goes back to the DA's office. Now she has a team of lawyers that are going to uh, disturb what's going on with the DA. And uh, Kim is Kim is not a happy person, and she is going to do everything that she can to get Huel off. And I think part of it is getting Huel off, but I think another part of it is Kim is just unhappy uh, with the injustices that are going on. We see Kim burying the prosecutor's office with motions and paperwork. We see the the judge's office as they go in, and there are all these postcards uh, from this little podunk town in Louisiana talking about how great Huel is and putting him over as a great person. Uh, the prosecutor begins calling a series of phone numbers, and of course, uh, we get the hilarious scene of Jimmy as a pastor. And uh, this this entire sequence, I mean, this might be one of my fa- this might be my favorite episode of the entire season, just for the fact that they are just, this is a tremendous con and the way that it's played off and the way that the postcards are paid off. It's so tremendous. And we get another, we get another donation website in a breaking bad TV series. And, and keep in mind, this was Kim's idea. She was the one at the end of episode seven, who's buying all the stationery at the store and telling Jimmy, she has an idea and it is, an immense amount of work to get Huel out of trouble. But with 
sending all those things in, getting all these fake phone numbers in there, hoping that the uh, the other attorney would read them all and go through the trouble of calling the numbers and ultimately coming to the decision that there's going to be they're trying to give this illusion that there's going to be these buses of people from Hewell's church coming from Louisiana to support him if they were to go to court. And that's something that the judge doesn't want. They don't want. So ultimately they get the settlement and Kim's plan works. And uh, boy, does that make her happy? Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. One of my favorite aspects is I think I pointed this out before and I pointed it out on the podcast so that I would remember it for the future. But the fact that Kim and Jimmy fuck after this bailing out of Huel, I don't think that that's a coincidence. No, not at all. But yeah, you could tell like Kim is, and and remember, like I was either, I think it was after this or something. Jimmy's talking about, we'll go on the straight and narrow. We won't do this anymore. I know you don't like to do this. And Kim's like, Meh, maybe we'll do it again. And they do in episode nine. But uh, you know, Kim's getting the, the, the thrill, the rush out of, out of doing these acts, just like she did when they were, were just doing it over conning some people at bars and stuff in other seasons. But this is, we talk about her needing to be fulfilled in other ways. I feel like she's getting her fulfillment from these, from these acts, these cons that for what, for one reason or another, it's something that she seems to, to really enjoy. It adds just a little, I guess, extra flavor to her otherwise fairly bland life. So we get Kevin of Mesa Verde asking about a new design on one of the branches in Lubbock, Texas. And this is what leads to uh, another all-time great con at the beginning of episode nine, as we see Kim limping on crutches as she is walking into a city of Lubbock building um, and asks for some plans. And we get some manipulation of, of these plans as they pull a scam. They switch the plans for the new branch. Jimmy is also involved as a hapless father and husband who apparently does not realize that you should not leave your child in a car. I, I would like to think that Jimmy is more self-aware than that, but just the way that he plays it off is, is pretty hilarious. Just the casualness with which he says, oh, I left the window open a little bit. Tremendous. Yeah, it's... But something important that does happen is Jimmy does tell Kim kind of about what's going on, and they have this huge argument uh, at the end of episode nine. And it's worth pointing out that Jimmy is basically denied his law office. So that is something important that happens. But I think that it's it's such a huge moment on the show because in the back of your mind, you're thinking, well, of course, Jimmy's going to get his law license back because he is a lawyer at the time of Breaking Bad. So it's a little bit of a twist that here in episode nine, he doesn't get it back. And then it leads to this huge blow up, of course, at the top of a parking garage. Kevin, are there any other important scenes that take place in the Breaking Bad universe at the end of a season four on a parking garage? I I can't think of a single one. But uh, so, you know, this is something that they've slowly been setting up and slowly been setting up. And eventually it, it, it blows up as as Jimmy tells Kim about what happened. And they they kind of have it out, so to speak, as Kim calls Jimmy out for some of the things that he's been doing. But Jimmy also calls Kim out for some of the things that she's been doing and kind of getting off 
on, in many ways, getting off on being a part of these cons, and it's such an important scene. It's something that I kind of was expecting at some point, either in this episode or in the final episode, because their relationship had just been deteriorating to this point, and it was just, it was well acted, it was well executed, and it really felt like all of the things that they had been doing up to this point just came out in these five minutes. So you're right. Yeah, this this scene's been building because something else we haven't talked about was that Jimmy's big plan for when he gets to practice law again is he wants to get another office, as we discussed with Huel, but he also wants him and Kim to be partners, not two separate lawyers and two occupying the same office space. He wants he wants his Wexler McGill firm where they're working together. And I think when he sees that she's fallen back in love with criminal law, that there's something to this and she's going to be on board. But she isn't. She, she, you know, she loves Jimmy, but I think she realizes, like she has in seasons before, like we've discussed them keeping separate, that she doesn't want to be connected to him professionally. She just doesn't. And who can blame her for the way that Jimmy acts in so many ways? So in a way to sort of lock herself in so that this isn't even an option or a discussion she needs to have with Jimmy, she takes Mesa Verde to Schweikert and Coakley and basically makes a connection and partnership between them two because it'll take some of Mesa Verde off of her back. It'll get her tied into Schweikert and Coakley where she can become a partner. And that means she doesn't have to practice law with Jimmy. So she kind of gets everything she wants and she doesn't have to be the bad guy and tell Jimmy, no, she can say, no, I can't because now I'm a partner with Schweikert and Coakley. And uh, once Jimmy realizes he's not going to be able to practice law again because they felt uh, he was insincere because he didn't mention Chuck during at all during his uh, his trial, his questioning. This is what causes the two of them to blow up. And Jimmy kind of calls her out for, you know, you still see me as slipping Jimmy and so on and so forth, which is kind of true. And uh, and, you know, she gives it right back and she basically says, you know, you know, Jimmy says, you're kicking me while I'm down. And she says, well, Jimmy, you're always down. And it's like this tough love thing that they both have that they've. They're saying things that they've wanted to say, but also know they couldn't or didn't really want to say. So it, it it's a it's a pretty heartbreaking and ugly scene, but it's almost like you you almost hope by by getting this stuff off of their chest, it may be able to begin this rebuilding process of that relationship because I've, it feels like for so much of the season, a lot of things needed to be said that weren't, and hopefully. You know, them getting this off their chest means a brighter future ahead for the two of them. And now we move to the finale where there is a really good scene involving Jimmy, the scholarship, and Jimmy wanted to give the scholarship to one person and basically everyone else did not. But it's because the person involved who would have gotten the scholarship had a bit of a past. So you can see why Jimmy would identify with her a little bit more than some of the other uh, people campaigning for the scholarship. But he gives this incredible speech about taking everything. And it's just it's this really amazing speech. And I would love to know the person that actually wrote this speech because it just feels like this is somebody's kind of actual perspective, and I I really, really enjoyed it. And what it was a great scene that took place in the finale, and I was just so impressed with it. It doesn't really fit in to the storyline, but I did want to make sure that, even so, I wanted to make sure that 
we mention that scene because it's a, it's a real good one. And it's a huge part of the storyline where Jimmy is trying to get to the appeal board and be able to get his license back uh, in the finale. And I mean, my goodness, just, just extremely well done. So uh, any thoughts on that particular speech? Uh, we are going to go back and talk about the flashback that takes place at the beginning of episode 10, but uh, that speech really stood out to me. Yeah, me too, because it, it Jimmy sees a lot of himself in this youth that a few years prior they did some things that they weren't proud of, but they cleaned up their record and all that. But he sees that this board already made up their mind on who they were, and that was that, and nothing was going to change their mind. And Jimmy experiences a lot of that with Chuck and other people who maybe remember him as the kid from the mailroom, and they, they'll never take him seriously because that's who they're always going to be to him. And I think he sees that in this boardroom. And obviously his his opinion has a lot of sway because it's obviously a scholarship named after his brother. But ultimately it's a board. It's a board decision. And it sucks because he's sitting on this board and he sees it firsthand, these people judging this young kid. I mean it's a kid. It's a high schooler trying to get a scholarship for college. And already they've they've uh, they've pegged her as something that – she apparently can never dig her way out of no matter how hard she's worked and that she has all this behind her. And Jimmy gives her this very impassioned speech. Uh, and it speaks a lot to his hearing as well. Obviously that was very, that was very, um, very connected to this speech too. But I think, I think it goes to the end of the season where Jimmy says, you know what I've put in this, I've put in my time, I've put in my hard work and apparently people are going to view me as this person. So I might as well lean into that. Definitely. And let's go back and talk about the flashback as uh, we see Jimmy officially becoming a lawyer and Chuck vouching for him. But really, Kevin, there's only one part of this flashback that needs to be discussed, and that is the fact that we get Ernesto singing. We do get Ernesto singing Total Eclipse of the Heart. Amazing part of the scene. Was so happy to see Ernesto again. Um, and I want to talk about the the song that Chuck sings too, but I think the big thing from this that I took away from it is I think it was really important for us to have a scene with Chuck and Jimmy sincerely having a good time together. And I think it was also important to show, and I took it as sincere, I don't know about you, that Chuck did care about his brother and wanted to support him. You know, he was the one who vouched for him when he graduated from from law school and he was there helping him out. Well, he was there for his after party and then sang with him and then took his drunk brother home to make sure he got home safe and stayed with him and all this other stuff. And I think that's important because if 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 Chuck truly, you know, he says in season three, I truly never cared about you. And I think it was nice to have a scene that proved, well, that's just not true, because if he really didn't care about Jimmy, then I think Jimmy's feelings about his death wouldn't be so complex and it would be easier for him to to toss aside. But I think it was important for us to see that there was at least one instance, one date, one time and place where Chuck and Jimmy sincerely had a good relationship as brothers. Well, and I think having this scene in this episode where they are having a good time, and I agree with you that it is something that comes across as being very sincere and that Chuck really is taking care of his brother. I think it makes what happens at the end of the episode all the more dark because you, you really see Jimmy abandoning uh, the the name and kind of leaving his brother behind in kind of this almost sadistic way. And yeah, I think having this scene play out, something else that always impresses me from an acting standpoint is I've heard Bob Odenkirk sing and look, he's not a great singer, but he is much better 
than he was in this episode. I can't imagine how hard it is to pretend to not be able to sing because when Michael McKeon goes up there, of course, because it's Chuck, Chuck can sing, and Michael McKeon has a pretty decent voice. Not, again, not great, not professional, but he is he is reasonable. If I went to a karaoke bar, I would not want to cover my ears when he sang. So I was I was just really impressed by the acting of both people in that scene. See, you say that, but you forget that's legitimately the lead singer of Spinal Tap, and he sung in a mighty wind too for uh I forget what the name of the, the band is in that, but so there's been those movies where he sings and he has some pipes and he has a musicality to him and so it, it stands to reason that Chuck would have that too, and he takes over the mic from Jimmy and really gets into the song. And I and I know that um, uh, Vince Gilligan and them were geeking out, like, "Oh my God, we have the lead singer for Spinal Tap singing in our show." So uh, I, I think you're not giving him enough credit for his musicality, to be honest. Of course, I mean Michael McKeon has had such a long career. I I remembered this is Spinal Tap. I haven't watched that movie in a while, so I don't remember him singing all that much, and A Mighty Wind is another movie. I don't even know if I've seen that, to be honest with you. It's wonderful. But let me talk about the song they sing, The Winner Takes It All by ABBA. Uh, and this was a long story kind of told by the, uh, the their music person on the show who's responsible for clearing rights and things like that. And so like he would tell the story about getting the song for the montage in Episode 7 and stuff too. So he himself is is from Germany. You wouldn't be able to tell it just by hearing his voice, but he mentions this because... They had the idea for getting this ABBA song, The Winner Takes It All, for the scene. And ABBA is apparently one of those bands that is very notoriously careful with their music. If they license it or whatever else, they want to be very involved with the process but to make sure that their song is being treated the right way, whatever else. And he says all this because he even mentions that he met one of the band members from ABBA in Germany at a music festival, and one of the people in the band was a fan of Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul at that point, knew of them as the music producer for the show, blah, blah, blah. And yet it was still really hard to get this song approved for the show. And it was one of those things where they had it earmarked for the scene and there was no plan B or backup. It was too big and too part of this, this flashback to be changed. But it got to the point too where Alba had to approve, and I think they may even handpick the person who put together the karaoke track of this song that plays that they sing over. And back in, I forget which episode it is where Jimmy gets the call about the death of Geraldine, the old lady from his commercials from her son who's trying to figure out their will. There's a Muzak version of The Winner Takes It All playing over the speakers in this. And they also had that same person create the Muzak version of this. So. I, I just think those stories are interesting because you hear a song and you're like, oh, that's a fun choice for this scene. But you don't realize how much goes into it. And, you know, once you once you're in this scene, it's like Kevin Wachtel. You have your heart set on something. You do what you got to do to make it work. And it may have been a headache. But by God, I think it was worth it to get this song in here because I think it worked really well for the scene. It absolutely did. I think it was a great choice. And as we go through the rest of the episode, uh, Jimmy is paying all this money. He's spending time at his brother's gravesite on the one-year anniversary uh, as he is trying to get his law license back. And eventually, he is able to get in front of the board. And, I mean, there's just a lot of frustration 
that's going on with Jimmy. I mean, we even see that he can't start his own car and he starts crying after that event. And, and I mean, usually that's what happens is that you're going through all these big things and you don't break down, but then something as silly and stupid as not being able to start your car, that's what's going to break you. And I don't know if it was in this moment that he kind of came up with this plan, but when Jimmy goes and gives his uh, speech to the appeals board, at first he was considering reading the letter that we had heard about toward the beginning of season four, but instead he gives uh, he gives this very uh, kind of impassioned speech, and this is another what I consider like an Emmy speech uh, from uh, from when Jimmy McGill as played by Bob Odenkirk, and eventually he is able to get his law license back. But just like what you mentioned with him re- with him reading the letter and Kim crying, Kim is once again crying, but it was an all, it was all an act. And Jimmy was lying, and it, it's clear that he has left the name, his brother, and perhaps his entire life behind. And the last, uh, the last line of this season is, "It's all good, man." And it's very clear that Saul Goodman is uh, is going to be the person that we are going to be seeing moving forward, and we're going to be seeing less and less of Jimmy McGill. The transformation is complete. And yeah, it is interesting to me that Kim was assisting Jimmy with all these things, the gravesite, the naming of the library, all the appearances to put upon to change the minds of the board about his sincerity, about his brother. And yet I think she feels like you're finally seeing the sincerity of Jimmy about his brother coming out in the court, but he just had her fooled too. And so I think she was going along with this to help Jimmy out. But I think she was relieved to see that there was some sincerity out of him in this court case and that, or, uh, you know, in this hearing, nope, turns out it was all enacted. I think that definitely takes her by surprise and disappoints her. And, uh, Jimmy, you know, he says puts in the paperwork to change his name. So he's not practicing under the McGill name anymore. And yeah, it's the last, the, the final vestiges of Jimmy McGill are being shed. And, uh, Saul Goodman is coming to prominence. And I think, the big question coming in is when when does he go from Jimmy McGill to Saul Goodman? And I think we're seeing it here at the end of season four. Definitely. And incredibly, we have been uh, we've been talking for almost an hour and a half and we have not even gotten to two other storylines. Oof. So uh, this is going to be fun. Uh, this these uh, the, the stuff with Mike and the drug dealers, I think it's going to go a lot faster. Though. Let's do it. Let's talk about it. All right, so with uh, with Mike, as we are kind of transitioning into talking about his storyline, we start off with Mike quitting his job as a parking lot attendant, as he no longer needs to support himself through that through those means. Uh, we once again see the hose. I just wanted to point that out. It doesn't really have anything to do with the season. I just really wanted to point that out, uh, that we see the return of that, and he is playing uh, with his granddaughter. I don't know whether it's boredom or whether it's something else, but Mike decides that he is going to live up to being a security consultant, and he decides to go to one of Madrigal's facilities. And, uh, Kevin, I could watch an entire season of Mike dressing down uh, a, a, a corporation for their lack of security. This, this, this sequence was so good. And we see him hearing a debate about Bruce Lee and Muhammad Ali between two of the drones that work there. And, um, there's a, there's a birthday card that Mike is asked to sign that says, have a perfect day. And I have to be honest, the fact that the person's name was Tina and the fact that the birthday card looked the way that it did, it was pitch 
perfect. It really was. And I think, you know, I, first of all, yes, I would absolutely watch a series of Mike Ehrmantraut infiltrating and tearing down the security systems of all these places. But I think for Mike, it's all about having your bases covered. It's like the same thing about having that hose in the yard. You know, if his daughter came over and saw him using a, a hand watering his plant, she'd be like, wait, didn't you have Kaylee make that hose so you could do it this way instead? It's the little details. So I think he needed to do this one big act so he could legitimately that he did a security thing for the company and that there's a lot of witnesses to him doing the security act. So he's covering all of his bases so he can get to the real heart of his work for Gus Fring in season four, which is, we'll talk about in a little bit. Uh, we certainly will. Uh, that, that definitely becomes a, a major focal point as, uh, so Mike dresses the organization down, calls out Madrigal for kind of their piss poor security. And this, uh, this involves Lydia as it is a, it is a bit of a disturbance that Mike is doing this and he meets with Lydia about the security. Um, and Lydia mentions the importance of keeping Gus's respect. And as this, uh, continues further, uh, we kind of see just how much of a detail-oriented person Mike is. And it's not just the scene with Lydia, but as we get into episode four, I think episode four is one of the most important Mike episodes that we have because it's not a, ma- there's not a, it's not a major storyline, but it just shows kind of who Mike is as a person. And we see him at the beginning. He is at the support group, and something has very clearly happened. And he mentions this idea of, well, you wanted me to speak, so I spoke. And then this is kind of one of the rare times that the show has done this, where they've shown something at the end, and then they go back and explain it. Basically what happens is that Mike, who we saw flirting with this Anita character uh, a little bit in the previous season, uh, he meets with Anita at a restaurant. She asks him on a date. Um, and they get to talking about uh, this person, Henry, who apparently uh, has changed his story about his wife a number of times. And it's also in this scene, we realize that Mike is a very big baseball fan. We've uh, we've seen it, and it's been alluded to previously uh, as he's been listening to the Albuquerque Isotopes on radio and watching them on TV in this season. But he very clearly mentions the date when the lights were installed at Wrigley Field, which is 1988. I wonder if Bob Odenkirk had anything to do uh, with that bit of dialogue being inserted in there, as he is a huge Cubs fan. Uh, again, the only detriment to his character is uh, Bob Odenkirk uh, being a Cubs fan. But uh, this this episode is great, and uh, Mike talks about Henry at the support group, and then he calls out Henry during the group meeting. But Kevin, they did not just hire anyone, any schmuck, to play Henry. No, they got the wonderful and comparable Mark Evan Jackson to play Henry, which was a little bit of a surprise just because not that I didn't expect him in such a prestige show, but in just such a small one time kind of role was a very interesting choice, I think, for Mark Evan Jackson. But I've loved him in Parks and Rec, Brooklyn Nine-Nine and even in Adventure Time. So it was I was very happy to see him here playing this role. So I mentioned the long con. Is this the long con to get Adventure Time and Breaking Bad to kind of in the same universe, in your same universe? Uh, yeah, and I can't – I was trying to think. I couldn't remember if there was anybody who had – who was on Adventure Time that had previously been in Breaking Bad or here. But this one – but this is like definitely like a final point of like, yep, we finally connected the two universes together. 
because he is uh, one of Jake's kids in Adventure Time. So for episode five, this is where we really get into kind of a Mike storyline, and it really feels like they they're they're telling a full arc with his character uh, because Gus wants to build this major area where uh, meth can be cooked. But in order to do that, they kind of have to do it under the dark of night, and they have to do it at this facility that's got to be big enough, but they also basically have to redo the entire facility. So they are bringing in a series of people, and we see kind of this process as the first person is kind of put under a hood, taken to the office, but Gus really does not improve. But then they bring in a second person whose name is Werner. And Kevin, all I could say is poor Werner. Poor Werner indeed, but he was not the first person they interviewed for this job. And I think they they really show what they're looking for in this person who's going to help get the crew build the super lab together. Because the first guy, he, he seems to have his stuff together, but it also feels like he's too much of a yes man. They ask him about the, the complexities of this mission and can you able to do that and he's like yes sir yes sir almost like he's saying whatever he can to get the job and they don't hire him well Werner's a little more sloppy like he's getting rope when they first pick him up he's a little bit more of a schlub but he's very earnest in his assessment of building the lab the time frame things that could be issues and this is exactly the kind of person that Gus wants to work with and ultimately he gets the job and I think that's that speaks a lot to their characters. They want somebody who, even if they're a little bit more every man and they're not sharp on the take or what have you, they're going to be a lot more honest with you and a lot more genuine in what it's going to take to get this done. And I think that speaks a lot to the organization Gus runs. So as this plot line develops, we get uh, the Germans coming over and they are going to be the ones that are put in charge. And this is meant to be kind of a six-month job but it is very clear that it's going to take a lot longer. And they set up one of the Germans, Kai, as kind of being a pain in the ass, maybe enjoys beer a little bit too much, is uh, kind of misbehaving. And at first it seems like, oh, he is going to be the one that kind of ruins it for everyone else and is going to kind of disturb this process. But we also get Mike and... Werner bonding over the course of these episodes as well as things are you know the Germans have some very specific rules that they have to follow they're basically staying in an empty warehouse that has some homes and some different basketball courts and volleyball and they could do all these different things but it is a it's kind of a lonely existence and they don't really get to spend a lot of time in the sun and they don't get to see their families and this leads to an issue as they eventually um, it gets to a point where they've been in the United States for so long that they just need a night where they can escape and do whatever. So they go to a, a, an American strip club and Kai very much enjoys it, enjoys it a little bit too much to the point where he gets kicked out. And Mike has to uh, has to bribe some people in order for uh, nobody to, for nobody to talk and. Mike and Werner are at a bar of their own, and they kind of they have an exchange, and um, the alarm bells went off, Kevin, because there is a there's a trope in movies and television shows about when you start talking about your family or retirement that uh, you are not long for this world. And Werner talks about missing his wife, 
And uh, I, I sent you the Jordan Peele sweating gif because I knew I knew what was coming. You didn't even need to tell me. If you had told me, I'd have been like, yes, he is going to die. But I uh, I knew what was coming, Kevin. Yeah, man. And poor, poor Werner. Like, he, Werner, he's somebody who he's just – I feel like everybody likes him because it's like, is he a villain or is he not? He's somebody who – for the first time, you see Mike letting his guard down around it when it comes down to brass tacks and what he's got to do to Werner. You can tell he really doesn't want to, but he has to. And But he's even talking to Gus beforehand and trying to find a way where it doesn't happen. And it's really the first time I don't want to say you see Mike vulnerable because you've seen that before. But it is a time where he lets someone in as more of an associate and finds on a relatable level. Uh, and that's someone he found in Werner. It's somebody who you feel like it's almost like is equal in in status, in age, in, in intelligence, in many different ways. And they have a mutual respect for each other. And it makes what happens all the more heartbreaking. So you mentioned the heartbreaking aspect. I think Werner thinks that he is maybe a little bit closer to Mike than he probably should. I think the biggest problem with Werner is I think he is genuinely a good person, but he's also extremely naive. I think the naivete is the problem. The fact that he thought that he could run away, which is what he does, and he escapes to kind of a resort place, and the fact that he thought he could get away with that and not deal with any of those consequences speaks to, I think, the issues that he has as a person. And another another red flag that Werner is not long for this world is that he is sitting by the pool and pools, Kevin, in the Breaking Bad universe, just like Orange is in The Godfather, water equals death. Yeah, and it's even like the background and the way it was lit and everything reminds you a lot of the, the home where... Gus uh, poisons everybody in season four of Breaking Bad. Very reminiscent of that. Yeah, it's just and it stinks because you know where Werner's coming from. He's really missing his wife. And even Mike asks him, like, what were you thinking? And he he says what he's thinking. Like, you think that I had made a mistake and, you know, he was just missing his wife. But he but I would never tell anybody anything. And I, I truly believe this is the case for Werner, that he just wants some time with his wife just a weekend just to get it out of his system and then back to work he can go and it wouldn't halt the the mission because he could leave very detailed plans to his men. But that wasn't the deal. That wasn't the arrangement. It's not what he had signed up for and it's not what they expected from him. And he makes the choice he does. I think he underestimates Mike and Gus and all that and uh, ultimately pays the ultimate price for it. And man, does it really suck too that his wife, who he loves and misses so dearly, the last thing he has to do to her is tell her to to go away and get back on the plane and fly back home. And just the tone and the language that he uses, it reminded me a lot of Walt's speech at the uh, at the end of Ozymandias. I mean, it's I, I don't think that that is a coincidence. It's it's definitely not a one for one, but it definitely had a similar tone to it. Yeah, just just really heartbreaking stuff. So I, we get this very powerful scene with Werner and Mike as they are. They're not quite in the desert, but they are definitely desert kind of adjacent. And Mike has to do something that he really does not want to do. We have seen him kill people before, but this is the first time that it feels like he's had to kill somebody for kind of a professional reason and not a personal reason. And that is a, that is a line that is being crossed. So as we're kind of on these parallel these parallel paths as Jimmy is becoming Saul and is kind of doing his own version of Breaking Bad. 
Mike is also doing the same thing as by the end he has had to commit this murder and it's not a murder that he wanted to commit but it's something that he had to do because he needs to stay alive to keep getting money uh, for his granddaughter and in service of Gus because again it's about keeping Gus's respect and one of the only ways that he could do that was to actually do the murder himself I firmly believe that what one thing I also love about the scene is that there's a lot of things that aren't said like Werner doesn't have to say out loud, like, why did you drive me to this remote location? You know, he like he realizes it all and just like takes it and he's like, uh, and he just comes to accept like, oh, yeah, this is happening, isn't it? And it stinks, man. It's it sucks to watch, but in a, in a very good way. I could not help as I was watching what was happening to Werner. I mean, it was just it was so clear to me. And I remember texting Kevin uh, the, the clip of The Simpsons. Uh, when McBain is talking uh, with his partner and Mendoza, or when his when his partner is talking about um, his 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 daughter's graduating college, he's gonna see his wife again. He's gonna retire. He has a boat, and then almost immediately he gets viciously killed. And I mean, it was predictable, but I think the show did a really good job of actually giving someone that Mike cared about in a way, and I don't think it was like a romantic love, or I don't even know how platonic it was, but there was a genuine relationship that was formed that Mike had to break, and that is a crucial part of his development, because as much as you and I both like Mike, and we appreciate the fact that he is such a detail-oriented person, he's still kind of a bad dude for what he has done involving himself in the drug trade, so... It's something that we have to be reminded of, and this scene and that that arc was a reminder of how bad of a person Mike can be. Yeah, and I think it's also important to remember that as much as Mike, how smart he is and he plays by his own rules in some respects, he is still under Gus Fring, and he knows what Gus expect, what, and that letting him live after compromising the mission, disobeying orders, would not be acceptable. And I think if it was up to Mike, he would have maybe attempted something to let Werner get away. But Gus has all of his bases covered and he knows there's no way I could get away with Werner still staying alive. Gus would find out and it would be my head that would be uh, on the line instead of Werner's or they'd both end up dead ultimately is what would probably happen. So I think that's that's important to remember, too, that ultimately Mike works for Gus. Gus would not have allowed any way for Werner to stay alive. Uh, and if Mike had gone against his word, both Werner and Mike would have ended up dead. Absolutely. So that is the Mike storyline. So we have one storyline to talk about. And I think we can do this in a relatively short amount of time because I think we can kind of hit some of the big picture things. And then that that's it. What do you think, Kevin? Let's just we can do that. Sure. The, the only thing I do want to mention quickly is we talk about the flashback that we see in the season four opener that Jonathan Banks says something like, well, you asked me to talk and I talked. Uh, it's it's his young. It's what we see is his young son, Maddie, writing his name in concrete. And you never see the actor's face. But even despite this, they cast the actor uh, Nicholas Liam King based on childhood photos of Jonathan Banks. So even in a scene where you don't see the person's face, they wanted to try to find an actor who as closely resembled uh, Mike Ehrman Trout slash Jonathan Banks as they as they could. 
I, res- I respect that attention to detail. I can't imagine what baby Jonathan Banks looks like. Like, I just picture Jonathan Banks old, his head on a baby's body. <laughs> more or less, yes. Maybe with a little more hair. Absolutely. So let's talk about, let's, again, I want to keep this kind of in the, in the big picture of things as basically in season four, Gus takes, takes more and more control over the drug trade in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And he's able to do this because of the fact that Hector has suffered a stroke and is no longer going to be able to be in charge. So one of the ways that Gus is able to manipulate the situation is because he, he is able to identify that Nacho has manipulated the situation for his own gain uh, with the placebos. So Gus, at one point, it tells Nacho that you are mine. So I think that's something that's really important. We even see Gus choke out Nacho's partner in one of those moments where you realize how bad of, bad of a person Gus is. But it, it very much, I don't think this is a coincidence, very reminiscent of kind of what he does in Breaking Bad. Just kind of this out-of-nowhere viciousness that is something that Gus just has to do because he's the only one that can get it right. Right, and I think the the choice of the Salamanca who ultimately deals with him being more of an equal to Gus in so many ways than before I don't think is uh, – um, I don't think it's a, it's a coincidence. I think the Salamanca family knew what they were doing here in that in that operation because I think they realized like Gus is, we're in danger of getting completely swallowed up by Gus Ring if we don't do something. For sure, and of course there is some machinations as uh, things kind of deteriorate uh, for Nacho and. You know, things are just not good for Nacho this season, and I feel like that is both in the text and out of the text, as it kind of feels like he's not as important by the end of the season, and a lot of what is happening with Nacho, it feels like a lot of that is being transferred to a new character, Lala, who you mentioned you like uh, a great deal, and I I know that Lalo's going to play a much bigger role in season five, just because he is barely even at the end of season four, but he kind of gets his own subplot in the, in the finale as he is uh, stalking Mike around and kind of seeing what's going on. So I know that we have a lot more of Lalo to look forward to. He is going to be huge in season five, but yeah, it's that, you know, Nacho's out of commission because he's recovering from the wounds that he has to inflict to keep up the facade and be on the good graces of, Gus and his crew, and since you have Tio out of the picture, Lalo comes in. Uh, he's never seen in Breaking Bad, but name dropped in season two. Again, we talk about where Jesse and Walt kidnap Saul in an attempt to coerce him to representing Badger, and he says something like Lalo, you know, something about Lalo and Ignacio. And we find out Ignacio is Nacho, and he mentions Lalo again. And he breathes this big sigh of relief when he realizes that Lalo didn't send them. So that gives you kind of an idea of, of the role Lalo plays in his life going forward. But this is an introduction. He's overwhelmingly charming. He's somebody who I feel like the Salamanca family up to this point has been very poignant. Like they're not they're not the kind of people to use metaphors like Tio would just say, I'm going to kill you. And that tells you what he does. Where Gus Fring is in that way, too. He'll use metaphors or he'll give these sort of vague warnings so people will shape up. And you get that same sense from Lalo, too, especially when they're talking one-on-one in Gus's office. He says something like, hey, I'm going to come back and get that recipe for the chicken. You know there's more to it than that. And then you get him falling around Mike and all these other things. So 
he's a very dangerous person, but he just has a little bit more tact to him, a little bit more smarts and uh, that charm of his that can be oh so dangerous. You get from him that you really haven't gotten from Salamakas beforehand. They're kind of like sledgehammers, and he has a little bit more of a, a cerebral touch to him. And Lalo is also apparently able to take ceilings down without making noise as the most gifable moment of season four is when Lalo is uh, is in the uh, the money exchange place and he comes crashing down through the ceiling and uh, points a gun. It's unfortunate that the image for this uh, season cannot be that gif because it's uh, it's a pretty great moment. It is a great moment. Would you believe that that sun had to be due with no wires or something? They just had to find somebody to jump down through the roof onto that floor. You gotta love you gotta love movies and television shows. Uh, so there are there are a couple of other other things that I want to mention. So there is a point when Gus meets with somebody who we are very familiar with from Breaking Bad. It's fucking Gale. David Constable returns not just in one episode, but he also returns in the finale as well. And I, I was a little bit surprised because David Constable, of course, is one of the important characters on Billions, and I know that production is extremely complicated, uh, shooting in New York and in other places, and he is very high on the call sheet on that show. So the fact that they were able to get him for even the two episodes that they did, I think is uh, is a really nice touch. Anything else that you could tell me kind of about how they were able to get him? And did they have to shoot both of his scenes at the same time? I can't remember exactly what they said about that. I know that they really wanted him back. I don't remember them mentioning Billion specifically or having to do a one-day shoot with him or whatever, but I think it was important for them to get him in the picture to give Gus the idea that I can make your own product here that'd be even better than the product you're outsourcing. You get his notebook seen a couple scenes that have the super lab plans. And uh, of course that notebook is very important in breaking bad. And you get to see him inside the super lab geeking out for the first time. Uh, and just the hollowed out part, not even the full thing, but the smile on his face and I'm happy to work with it is also good. But the big thing they talk about is the song he sings in this episode. This is the elements by Tom Lehrer which is basically him singing the chemical elements set to the tune of the major's general song. And Tom Lehrer himself at the age of 90 granted them the rights. And he was aware of their show and, and all that stuff. And I, they didn't say this on the podcast, but I think I heard or read elsewhere that, that uh, the actor that plays Gail Bedecker spent like a month memorizing this song before coming on the show. So I guess if they that leads me to believe that they knew he was coming in and they had to work within his schedule if he had so much head time to try his best to memorize this song. Of course, this song it was the open for this podcast, so I that and that should not come as a surprise to anyone. If you've if you've been listening, you know what kind of music is going to come before this uh, these episodes. Yeah, what there's I mean, it's really there's a couple great choices from this season, but I feel like. There's the joy of seeing Gail Bedecker again and him singing the elements. I mean, if he's going through all this trouble to memorize it, we have to put it in our podcast, right? As tribute. Yeah, I mean, I think it's only appropriate. I mean, if David Constable is going to put in the effort to memorize it, then we have to honor that effort by by letting him uh, sing the elements for us. Uh, Kevin, I know that you like to dig deep into the podcasts and you like to get some fun facts for us. So we didn't get to talk about the bell. We do have to talk about the bell, as this is uh, this is an important element, and uh, it is uh, it is quite the origin story. As 
Hector is not able to communicate anymore after having a stroke, and Gus has decided, well, Hector's just good enough. He doesn't want Hector dead, but he also doesn't want him to be able to return to his former form and take back over the drug trade. So he put he is put into an old person's home, and what happens? Lalo is the one that gives him a bell. Yep, so now he has the bell. He's in he's in the same um, retirement home that he will be in when he ultimately blows up Gus in Breaking Bad. So we're pretty much seeing Hector in the way and in the play in the state he's in and the place he ends up in Breaking Bad here in Better Call Saul. And yeah, Lalo's the one who sets him up with the bell to communicate. Any miscellaneous items that we have not talked about yet, now is your chance to do that. Well, fortunately, I was able to get them in all throughout this episode sprinkled in an organic way because the truth is like season three had a ton of Easter eggs and there really weren't any Easter eggs in this season. All of them were very on the surface. I mean, you have the stuff with the lab and Gale, all the, everything that's kind of like we see coming in Breaking Bad is very much like big parts of the story here. So there aren't as many Easter eggs. Absolutely. So. We have just one season left of Better Call Saul to discuss. Uh, we will discuss season six when it become when they start airing it. Uh, any final thoughts on season four? All I can say is, Kevin, this is my favorite season of Better Call Saul. I think the way that it starts and ends is pretty fantastic. I think there's a little bit of a lull in the middle. I think especially with Jimmy's storyline, I think there's some things that don't totally work for me. But I think in the big picture, it all really comes together. Everything is paid off so extremely well. I think all three storylines are actually interesting in the end. And I know that we did give a little bit of short shrift to uh, the drug storyline, but I still think within the context of the show, it worked. But I, th- I just think you could kind of yada yada some of the stuff that takes place. Even, I mean, there's an action scene that involves the twins and Nacho that I think is extremely well done and is worth mentioning. But yeah, Better Call Saul is my favorite season of the show so far. I still think season three is my favorite, but this is way up there. Cause I think the big thing you want to answer after season three is how's the show going to carry forward without Chuck and obviously Chuck shadow large over season four anyhow, but he's not physically there uh, aside from a couple of flashbacks in these episodes. And I think they do a really great job of incorporating him and the, and the mental toll he takes on his characters and gets us to the end. Jimmy, all all but denouncing the McGill name to become his own man, which is, I think, ultimately probably for him the best for his mental health. You also get to see kind of Gus's empire building up, the Salamanca family kind of evolving in certain ways. I don't want to say they're they're lower now than Gus, although one could argue that they are. But Lalo coming into the picture is definitely going to change the dynamic between those two groups, you'd have to imagine. And I, th- I, so I think they did a really good way of advancing everything, having Chuck matter in the season without being there. But also I think they're, they can comfortably take him out of the picture going into season five and ahead. I think they dealt with him correctly and enough here for it to feel like it matters without having been totally overbearing. And I, just from the sense of the podcast and watching it, it feels like this was, there was so much, it, like there was a lot of intensive labor and thought put into so much of these episodes and yet it comes out as feeling so effortless. And I think that really speaks to the signs of a great television show. There's so much here to love as 
if you're just watching Better Call Saul and haven't seen Breaking Bad for whatever reason. But so much good stuff for Breaking Bad fans, too, to really sink their teeth into. So easy thumbs up of a season for me. And for some reason, it's even like better than I remembered. I don't know what I I, I remember the ending very clearly, but I think a lot of the and, and like the big storyline with the the building of the of the super lab were the two big things that stuck with me. But I feel like it's all the little details and stories and stuff that are so rich and perfect that make this season as good as it is. Even if, yes, you're right. There are some some times where it drags or maybe you're you some things maybe linger a little too long. But ultimately, it's a, a really another, another fantastic season of television from the Breaking Bad crew. So we will be returning in three weeks. Usually we are a once a month show, but we felt that it would be appropriate to kind of make this a year long project and end things in 2020. And just like everything else in 2020, just leave it where it belongs in this year. So we are going to come back in three weeks and discuss better call Saul season five. That might, that, that episode might, break the record because we almost went two hours on season four cutting a few things i get the feeling it's going to be much harder to cut things when talking about season five yeah uh we're we're gonna have to see it's it's a it's a hell of a season uh definitely feel and the thing i like about better call Saul too is that each season i feel like has a pretty distinct to it and season five is distinct from everything else we've seen so far so i'm very excited to go move forward with Right now, anyways, the final season of Better Call Saul before the true final season comes out. And I'm glad that you are hosting and editing that particular podcast, and I don't have to worry about it. I get to show up, do my job, and leave. Editing is fun, everyone. It's the best part of doing this these podcasts. It's not the interacting. It's not the talking. It's the editing. That's where the fun happens. Yeah, that's, that's where the magic happens, as they say. Cool. All right, for Kevin Ford, my name is Jerome Cusan. Thank you so much for listening. We will talk to you again in three weeks. Better Call Saul Season 5. It's all good, man.